If you brought your Bibles tonight, and I hope that you have, turn with me to the book of Revelation. Last book there in your Bible, the book of Revelation, uh, to the second chapter. Uh, I want to preach to you uh, from the uh, letter that was written to the church in Ephesus that's there in Revelation chapter 2. Uh, these, these letters, um, there are seven letters to the seven churches of Asia here in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And I've preached on various ones of them over the years uh, and uh, at different times. And uh, there's, just, there's just so much there. As a matter of fact, I think I preached, um, can't remember now, let's see, I think it's at the end of chapter 2, the, the church at Pergamos, I think I preached on that one here, I don't know, maybe a year or so ago, but uh, <clears throat> anyways, uh, uh, I'll give you just a second longer to find it, and then we'll read the first seven verses, that's the letter to the church of Ephesus, uh, and then we'll go to the Lord together in a word of prayer, and I would ask that you just continue to pray that everything would be done just exactly according to God's will here tonight. Revelation chapter 2 verse 1 begins and says, Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven, gold, um, seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. And hast borne uh, and hast patience, and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from, wh from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. Or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of of the paradise of God. Will you bow your heads with me? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just humbly come before you one more time here this evening. We thank you, Lord, for the good day and for the many blessings. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity you've given us to gather here tonight to uh, just to worship together, to lift our voices up together, uh, to, to, for your word, the bread of life, to be broke here tonight. We thank you, Lord, for just so many blessings that you've poured out on us here tonight. Uh, God, but we thank you most of all for your son, Jesus. Lord God, that you sent him and give him so that we might have life and have that life eternally and abundantly. Lord, I just pray as we go forward tonight in this service, Lord, you know our hearts, uh, you know our minds, you know uh, our lives. You, there, there's nothing that is hidden from you, nothing you do not see. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would just move in our midst in a mighty way, that you'd have your way and your will with each and every one of us. Lord, you know where we fall short. You know the things that we struggle with. Lord, you know the temptations that we face. You know the, where the devil has been attacking us, where he is attacking us. You know where he's going to attack us next. And so, Lord, I just pray right now, Lord, that you would, first of all, uh, lift up your people and that you would strengthen them and that you'd encourage them. And I pray, Lord, tonight, Lord, that you would just move in our midst in a mighty way, Lord, that you would walk amongst us just as you talk about here in your word. Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would just know that we've been in your presence, Lord God. Lord, my prayer tonight is, is that you would just uh, minister to the hearts of each one and the minds of each one that is here tonight, Lord God. And I pray, Lord, if there is anything that you find in our hearts, in our lives, any thoughts that we've done, anything there that does not please you, that does not bring you glory. God, I pray, Lord, that you'd convict us of it. God, that you'd bring it to our attention so we can repent of it and get it out of the way. Lord, so that we can walk with you closer than what we ever have before. Lord, so that we can be nearer to you. God, so we can have sweet, intimate fellowship with you. Lord, like we've not experienced before. Lord, a closeness with you. God, I just pray here tonight, Lord, that you would just move in our midst in a mighty way. 
And Lord, my prayer is always above everything is that if there's any here tonight that are lost, any that don't know you, God, let tonight be the night that they get things right with you before it's too late, before it's everlasting too late. So Lord, I'm just asking, help me to get out of the way. Help each, every, all of us to get out of the way and let you be God of this service tonight and have your way and your will here in our midst and we'll be sure and give you all the glory for it. Lord, we love you. We worship you. We praise your holy name. And I ask it all in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. Um, I like the book of Revelation a lot. Um, I'm fascinated by a lot of it. I'll be the first to tell you that I don't understand a lot of it. Um, and maybe that's because so much of it's prophetic. So much of it is still future, but yet there's a lot that's past. Uh, sometimes it's hard to discern between that. Sometimes it's hard, you know, the Bible talks about rightly dividing the word. Sometimes it's hard to rightly divide and to understand and to, and to get what. And honestly, the, all that I get and I understand is what little bit God gives me from time to time. Now, I know this as we go through the book of Revelation, uh, if you was to go through and read it, and I, and I like how God promises a blessing for anyone who will do that. So I would encourage you, if you haven't in a while, or maybe you never read it all the way through, sit down and read it. Um, no, I'll, 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 I'll give you something to look for and notice as you go through it. Notice all the sevens as you go through the book of Revelation. Try hard. Let, let, me, let me give you maybe even a different way to read your Bible than maybe what you normally do. When you read it, read it in such a place or such a way. Now, I don't know what this may look like for you. It may just mean the table by your chair, and it may actually mean sitting at a desk or at the kitchen table. But when you go through the book of Revelation and you read it this time, be sure you have a pen and notepad right there. Not, I don't mean like you know where there's one at and you can go get it. I mean all you got to do is right there. It's in place right where it would be if you were going to write so that you just grab your pen, jot yourself a little note. Uh, when you jot yourself a little note, don't write, you know, write what you need to, but don't write any more than what you need to. Don't, don't you know, what I'm saying is, is get back into the reading, but be sure you make yourself a clear enough note that you can come back and you can understand what it is that you were trying, what you, it is you were thinking, whatever it ha was you had a question. As you go through the book of Revelation, of course, that, that, that paper and that pen is for the reason, anything that stands out to you, anything that jumps out at you, right? Whether it's something you never saw before, or maybe it's something that you're curious about, and you're like, what is that? What in the world does that mean? What is that talking about? Whatever it is, just make yourself enough of a note so you can come back to it later. But go through the book of Revelation, making note of things as you go. And I'm going to give you one thing to watch for as you go through there. Watch for, as I said a minute ago, seven. Okay? Now, when I say seven, um, there's going to be places where the number seven comes up. You're going to see the number seven come up for seven candlesticks. You're going to see the number seven come up for uh, the seven uh, angels. You're going to see... Number seven come up for the seven spirits of God, right? There's going to be places where you see the number seven come up. There's also going to be places where you will just need to count out seven. For instance, um, I don't remember if it uses the word seven in relation to the churches of Asia or not, but there's seven letters there in chapter two and chapter three. So you can easily see that as you go through. Oh, here's, you know, Ephesus is letter one, right? And, you know, Smyrna, and you just go on through them, right? Uh, Church of Laodicean is the seventh one, is the last one. You see there's seven there. You'll go through there and you'll see, you know, there's seven letters, right? To, seven, to the seven churches in Asia, right? You'll see in chapter four, seven spirits of God, right? And you see the seven messengers or the seven angels, right? You go through there and you will see seven seals. You'll see seven trumpets. You'll see seven vials. You'll see seven beings. You'll see seven... You'll see seven visions, right? I mean, you just go through there. See what all you might find and what all you might come up with. I even would propose, and it's just my thought for as much as my simple little brain can grasp it, I actually think that you could pretty neatly take the book of Revelation uh, and there's seven divisions in there. 
I actually think it repeats itself seven times. It's message, but it's from different perspectives, different aspects. And so it's, it's a, hey, man, this thing is like an onion, right? Each layer you pull back, there's another layer. And I'm, and I'm going to propose to you that each layer you pull back, there's going to be another set of something there. I'll give you one little one here that you can kind of look apart and, and, and break through as, as you want. And uh, now I wish I had brought my note with me so I could read it off to you. But anyways, in the seven letters, I've always known there's seven letters to seven churches, but each one of those letters has got seven elements to it. In other words, there are seven parts. The Lord used the exact same format for each of those seven letters, and there's seven parts, seven elements to each one of those, to each one of those formats. So, so you pull that layer of the onion apart, and there's another one. You see there, I never even noticed that before I was studying for this sermon. So anyway, so we've got the book of Revelation. We've got all these sevens to it. We start out notably here with these seven letters. And the first one is the church of Ephesus. Now, that should stand out to you, okay? Because the church of Ephesus, right? That's who the book of Ephesians is written to. That is a letter. You want, this isn't in Revelation, but you want to see another seven. I hadn't caught for a long time. Paul writes books in the Bible now, right? A lot of them are letters that Paul wrote to churches. There's seven of those. Seven of those. Jesus wrote seven. Paul wrote seven. Now Paul wrote multiple times. There's more letters that Paul wrote than just seven. But it's an interesting thing. I hadn't noticed that until recently either. But anyways, the church, uh, the this letter to the church of Ephesus should be uh, catch your attention because the book of Ephesians is a letter that Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus. The church of Ephesus, right? We can read some about its history in um, the book of Acts. Can't remember where at in Acts right now. Maybe it seems like chapter 17, 18, 19, 20, somewhere in there, but don't hold me to that. I would just have to go back and look. But anyways, we can read about the history. We can see some of the founding of the church of Ephesus there. We know that this is a, that, that this is a church um, that had been going for quite a while, for at least 40 years. We know that, um, oh man, 30 years previous to this, right? Okay, so the book of Revelation is John on the Isle of Patmos writing, and, and the Lord is giving him this, okay? 30 years previous to this is, is about when Paul wrote his letter to them. 10 years previous to that, Paul was the pastor at the church of Ephesus. I don't know if you realize that or not, but Paul was the pastor there. After Paul, Timothy was the pastor there, right? Uh, now, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but church history tells us that after Timothy, Onesimus, the very one talked about in, in the book of Philemon, Onesimus, he was the pastor there for quite some time. As a matter of fact, some suggest he was still the pastor there, or that John pastored there for a while, and then Onesimus pastored after John, and John was still, or I mean Onesimus was still the pastor there when we get to this letter. Now, that part is just tradition in church history. I don't know, but it's interesting. Here is something else to know about these seven churches before I get into this specific letter. Jesus gives the same warning to all of them. And just to sum it up, in my old hillbilly vernacular, Jesus tells them, if you don't straighten up, you're going to cease to exist as a church. He gives that warning, right? The threat is to remove their candlestick. He gives that warning to all of them, right, in their letters. One thing to take note is all seven of these churches, right? Everybody wants to figure out what is the, seven, the letter to the seven churches mean. One thing that we know for sure is these are seven historical churches that existed at one time in the past. They existed in the first century. These are all seven churches that were thriving and going strong at one time. These, are all, these letters are to seven churches that are addressing real problems that the churches had at one time. And all seven of these churches are no longer open. There's not a single one of them that you could go and sit in a service in any longer. 
There's a few of them. There's a couple of them. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was reading a little bit about Ephesus. And, of course, the town of Ephesus is in ruins now. But um, anyways, uh, you know, they think that they know where the building is. They've located the ruins of the building and the ruins of the old part of the city. But there's nobody had church there for a long, long time. Matter of fact, these churches are all in um, what's modern-day Turkey. They're all overrun with heavy Islamic influence there, right? This was an area that was, had a strong Christian presence at one time. It's now all completely overrun uh, with Islam. None of these churches are still open and going. People wonder, okay, why? Why do we have these seven letters to these seven churches here in the book of Revelation starting out? Why are they there? Well, first of all, I would say that let it be a warning to the church today. Let it be a warning to us. Jesus makes it clear and points out the things that they were doing right and things they were doing wrong. Let us learn from that. Let us learn from what they were doing right, and let us learn from what they were doing wrong. To me, I think that is probably the primary thing that we need to see from these. I do think that it's probably true also. Some believe that these seven churches represent the seven uh, church ages. There's only one church age, but the, the seven periods of the church during that age, right? So the first one would be the uh, the apostolistic, or is that the right word? Is that even a word? The age of the apostles, the time period the apostles were still alive in and those immediately after them, right? The first century church. And then you go on down to the seventh church is the Laodicean church. That's the one that's lukewarm, right? And, the, the, and that does, I, I'll admit, that one describes the church in America anyways to a T. So I don't disagree with that outlook of it at all. Some people say that you see these seven churches, each one of them's got a personality, each one's a certain type of church, and you can read this letter and this description to them, and you can see what type of church it is. I mean, you can pick it out real quick. And if you are familiar with the, the churches in the community, especially if you know them well and know the pastors and people in them, you can almost say, oh, yeah, that's this church, and that's this church, and that's this church. And, and, and so some people take it and interpret it as those represent the different types of church, and you will find those different types of church in any area or community where there's a, I guess it would have to be several or a bunch of churches, but where there's a strong Christian presence. I wouldn't argue with that either. I can, I can see that. But I'm going to go back to they're here. They're here for our learning. And so let, us, so let us look at them and keep in mind, these are, don't get too caught up in the prophetic part of it because the prophetic part of it is just our best guess and we don't know. But what we do know for sure is the historical part of it. And we know the false doctrines, for instance, to the Nicolaitans. I'm not even going to preach on that tonight, but that is mentioned as a problem both in this church and in the church of Pergamos. That's actually the reason, the only reason I remember preaching in the Church of Pergamos here, however long ago it was, I don't know, a year ago or whatever, is because of that doctrine of the Nicolaitans, right? That shows up in both of them. And, you know, I told you what most think, what the historical accounts tell us, right? We don't know for sure, but that it's actually the, the deacon, Nicholas, that's, uh, that's ordained there in, what is that, Acts chapter 6, uh, that he has been got to the point he's teaching a false doctrine that you can sin without consequences. Actually, the reason I, I remember that so well is I made the connection. That kind of sounds like once saved, always saved, isn't it? You can be a Christian and you can sin and live in sin and there's no consequences for it. No spiritual consequences, no long-term consequences. If that's what it is, I don't know, that's my speculation. Jesus wasn't too proud of it. He didn't like it at all. As a matter of fact, he said he hated it. So let's look here at this for just a minute. Let's see what we can learn, what we can figure out. Let's just kind of go through the verses here and see what we can see from this. And I'm going to say this, first of all. 
Jesus always talks about, like I said, he uses the same format in all seven of these letters. And he starts out praising him, right? Whatever, if there's anything good, right? Laodiceans a problem there. But if there's anything good, he's going to say that about it, right? And so for over 40 years, this church has remained faithful. They remain faithful to the word of God and they remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and they've done that even though it's been through difficulties and it, the, through persecu- persecution. The members of that church have endured. They've kept on. But by this time, as I mentioned a minute ago, Ephesus, is, it's, it's not a new church anymore. It's not a baby church. It's not a young church. It is getting some years on it by this point. It is 40 plus years old, right? Uh, and so anyways, this church is getting some age on it. They, they've come to the point that uh, they are getting set in their ways. Things aren't new and fresh like they once were, right? The, it seems like the zeal is gone. The fires have died down. I'm sure there's ones with faint, distant memories of when the Apostle Paul was there and how fiery of a preacher he was and the zeal that he had and how excited they all were. And then when Timothy come along, and you know, I, I'm sure there's a lot of those things. They probably still had a, had, maybe they still had the original or a copy of the original letter that Paul had written them that we now have as the book of Ephesians. So as we look at this and we look at verses 2 and 3, I think verses 2 and 3 give us some insight into a very busy church. Even at this time, this many years, and I don't know how big they were at this time. Maybe they were really big. I don't know. But at this point, we can still see a very busy church. We can see that they were an accomplished group there. Notice that the Lord says here uh, that I know thy works, right? He declares it. He says, I know thy works, right? They were a group of believers who had not, uh, who had not only set out to do something for Jesus, they actually had done something for Jesus. The word know, when you look at know, it, that kind of gives the description of, uh, of, of God knowing because he's watching, right? That's the picture that it paints there, seeing observation so maybe that's something for us to keep in mind lord's watching us he knows and he sees he observes everything that we do for him and he's making a record of it all if he had an account he had a record he knew kept track of he remembered really is what it's saying there so we know that they were an accomplished group we know that they were a busy group right the lord says i know thy labors Right? That's right there in, at the beginning, or in the, verse 2, right? I know thy works and thy labors. Right? These were, this was not a group of idle folks. They weren't just sitting around. They were not a lazy bunch. They were workers for the Lord. We see that here. And we also know that they were a patient group. He says that. As a matter of fact, he uses the word uh, patient twice. He says, I know, and then you have thy works, thy labor, thy patience. Right? So he's saying, I know thy works, I know thy labor, I know thy patience. Now, patience in this sense has the idea, or is a term of endurance and perseverance. In other words, he's saying he knows, you know, the, this group, they weren't quitters. What they started they finished. They saw it as a duty and they persisted, right? It, despite struggles and suffering, right? They persisted. They kept on. As we look at this, we also see that they were a group with strong convictions, right? It, it just goes right on after patience and it says, and, and, that, and how thou, right? So he's saying, I know how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And then it even says, and tried them to say they're apostles and not. Right? Kent's not, uh, not bear them which are evil. Bear it means the idea, right? It has the idea of support, right? You bear something up to carry, right? You bear a burden, you carry it. Here is um, the line, right? The line between right and wrong. Here is the line, right here is the line between light and darkness, 
right? They would not support, they would not condone, they would not go along with those that were evil. Those that did wrong. They didn't want anything to do with it. Jesus sees that. He recognizes that. He commends them for that. If they were a group with courage, right? He goes on and he says, has tried them and found them liars. Right? They were were concerned about the truth. So this is an indication that the truth is the measuring stick. Right? They took a stand for truth. And they were a group, I think we see here, they were a group with the right motivation. It It even goes on and says... Verse 3, and has borne and has patience for my name's sake, has labored and has not fainted. Right? For my name's sake. Right? They had labored. Right? So that word labor, right? That provides the idea of being absolutely worn out, weary, faint, right? From working for the Lord. They were motivated to labor even in weariness and weakness. Listen to me. We need, we need a group of Christians. So far on what he's saying is good. And we need Christians like that. We need a group of Christians who will press on, right? And, and even, notice that he goes on and he says there, you know, that they'd labored and has not fainted, right? That's at the end of verse 3. Has not fainted. They didn't grow weary in well-doing. Right? Fainted, that kind of presents the idea to us of feebleness, uh, to be physically sick, right? Uh, To just give out, right? Through weariness and sickness, they kept their hand to the plow. And they kept on going, and they didn't stop. But, verse 4. Verse 4 gives us some insights into their trouble. Right? Can I read it to you? Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. I want you to notice something there. They had not lost their first love. Right? They had left it. He's very clear here. He does not say... They lost their first love. He says they left their first love. You see, there's a big difference between left and lose. I think that's a problem in in some of our uh, Christian thinking and talking about salvation, for instance, and those things. There is a big difference between left and lose. I object wholeheartedly when talking about salvation for a minute to the word lose but not left. See, they left it. They didn't lose it. If you lose it, you don't know where to find it. You don't know what happened to it. Think about the things that you lose. You lose your car keys, right? There's a whole difference between... You're not in a panic. Well, you might be, depending on where you're at. But when you're at the house and you need to go somewhere, you're not in a panic because you left your car keys on the table or left them on the couch or on the end table or in your purse or in your pocket or whatever the case may be. You left them there. You know where you left them. You know where to go back and get them. When you lose them, you don't know where they're at. Something happened to them and they're gone. They didn't lose their first love. They left it. They left theirs behind somewhere. Here is the idea. Here is the picture that is painted here. It's like of a mechanical duty. Is that the right way to say that? Where you're just robotic in how you do it. You're mechanical in how you do it, right? They have left their, their uh, mechanical duty, right? This, this mechanical duty to do what they know they should do, right? Has, it just overwhelmed their initial motivation, 
Right? I think that's the point that he's trying to make there. Let me illustrate it to you this way. Sometimes you see this in couples, right? If you've been around long enough, you could probably think of a couple that this is the case with, that you've seen this with, right? In other words, what I'm trying to say is marriage comes, duties and responsibilities comes, uh, but the things that brought them together kind of get set aside. Now, morals are kept. Nobody is cheating on anybody or anything like that whatsoever, but the spark is gone. And they're just going through the motions. They're just going through the motions. Have you seen that before? Do you know what I'm talking about? Can I propose to you? Isn't that the problem in many churches today? Isn't that maybe something, isn't that maybe what he is talking to them about here in this letter? They're doing the right actions, but they're just going through the motions. They've left their first love. They're just going through the motions. Now, that's the problem. That's what he's addressing. But Jesus doesn't just say, and he never would say this, he doesn't say this, but he doesn't just say, you used to be good, now you're terrible, that's too bad, you're going to hell, no hope. Right? That's not, that's not, he gives a solution to this. Right? He, he, if you don't want your candlestick removed, here's what you need to do. Verse 5 contains it, right? That's really as far as I plan on going tonight is verse 5. Verse 5 gives us some insight on how to relight the torch. I'm going to propose to you there's three steps here. There's three things here. Three simple actions that you can do, I can do, and every church across the land can do. To relight the torch. First, let me just read verse 5 to you. And then we'll pick it apart. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen. And repent. And do the first works. Or else I will come unto thee quickly. And will remove thy candlestick out of his place. Except thou repent. It's all contained right there. Right up to that first semicolon. The first step is the first word. Remember. Remember. Right? What, what does it mean to remember? It means to call to mind. Right? It, to remember. That's an exercise of the memory. Right? Uh, it actually, if, if you dig into the Greek word here, by implication, it, it, it means to mention, to speak of. Right? That's one way that we remember things is by telling stories. Right? Part of telling the story is for your benefit or the listener's benefit, part of it, it helps remind us and helps us to remember. That's actually kind of the picture that's being painted here. If you will, this is what he's telling them is it is a trip down memory lane. Think about it for just a minute. It's good to remember how it was at the first, right? Do you remember? It's good to remember how it was at the first. Do you, re, do, you remember, uh, do you remember when you first got saved? Do you remember how it felt? Do you remember how it was? Do you remember the miracles that God has performed in your life, right? I, I, talk, I don't talk about it often enough. I haven't talked about it in quite a while. But when God miraculously healed my eye. Let me tell you the story, right? It's good for me to remember. I believe, and here's why. I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt. Well, this is one of the reasons. The main reason I believe why is the Bible says so, okay? That's a good enough reason. But I got a personal experience to go with it. Jake just got on to me this morning about telling stories. I don't like preachers that tell stories. Well, you got one tonight, Jake, all right? Uh, but anyways, I hadn't been saved that long at all. Let me say this. I started saying I got, I'm getting old. I forget. I get sidetracked. One story runs into another one. Next thing you know, I've chased a rabbit clear around the barn and don't even remember what I'm doing. 
All right, so here we are. I started to tell you this morning, I believe. I believe in the miracles of God. I believe God is still in the healing business, right? I don't believe for one second that, that the healing power of God was just for the first century, just for the first few years, and then after that, God's not in the healing business anymore. I believe God is absolutely still yet in the healing business. I do. I absolutely believe that. Glory to God. Hallelujah. That's something to be excited about. That's something to shout about. And let me tell you my own experience, right? My own time. God touched me it healed me. You don't have to believe anybody else's stories. This ain't some TV preacher here, all right? Uh, this is your pastor. You know me. Uh, I'm, I'm not that kind of a person anyways. But listen to me. I had, uh, I had years ago, I burnt my eyes real bad welding. And I kind of had had some problems off and on after that. I had pretty well gotten past that and gotten over that. In the meantime, we've moved to Mountain Grove. I've gotten saved. I am on fire for the Lord. Remember them, that first love and them first works, right? Uh, we were going to church at Almost Home. I had not answered my call to preach yet or anything like that. Um, I woke up and I oh had such a hunger for the Word. I, the thing that bothered me the most is, is I couldn't see well enough to even read right then. But anyways, I woke up in the middle of the night. I hadn't had any problem with my eyes in, in quite some time, or my eye, in quite some time. And I woke up in the middle of the night, and it was terrible. I mean, it felt like just like it did whenever I had, had burned it, you know, welding real bad, and it you know, peels and all that stuff. And I couldn't see, I couldn't, nothing. Jennifer wanted to take me to the emergency room, and I told her no. Um, two things. One, I knew I was going to miss, miss church in the morning if we went to the emergency room. Ah, that wasn't happening. You, you, look, if, it took, if I had to call four guys from church to carry me in on a stretcher or a couch like they did, uh, the one man, right, then lower me through the roof, whatever, I was going to be in the house of God. I told, and plus our insurance wasn't, wasn't I don't even know if we had insurance at that, point, at that time, but anyways, that was going to be a deal, and I just told her, no, we'll wait until Monday, I go to the regular doctor, because if I kept my eye closed, as long as I didn't open it, it wasn't like, you know, it, would, it hurt me bad or anything like that. I just could not open it. I couldn't open it, I couldn't see very good. Uh, if I did try to open it, even hold it open, I mean just water like crazy, and it was just, it was bad, okay? We went to church that morning. It was obvious. You could just look at me and you knew something, you know, wrong, okay? You didn't have to be around me very long. I didn't have to come up and tell you, you know, um, that I was pretending I was a pirate today or anything like that. You knew. We went through service that morning, and you can imagine, just like it would be if I come in here to, on a Sunday morning like this, everybody and their brother is, you know, what'd you do with your eye? What's wrong with it, right? I don't know how many would-be doctors I had trying to pry my eye open and look in it and see, oh, you got to have gotten something in it. You know, I, I kind of think maybe I might have scratched it in the night and just re that old, you know, got that going again or whatever. I don't know. But anyways, they were, you know, convinced. They was, I remember my pastor, Brother Jerry, he was convinced, had something in it, and he was like, I can see it, I can get it, let me see, you know. And no avail, no avail. And it bothered me that after I tried anyway, so, and I just could not read, uh, read the Scripture. I was wanting to read the Bible. I loved sitting there in the afternoon on Sunday and reading the Bible, and I just couldn't do it. And we went back to church that night. Now here's silly, foolish me. Bible tells us that if there's a problem, if there's a sickness, if there's an ailment, if there's an affliction, right? Call on the elders of the church, come forward, anoint them with oil, lay hands on them, pray. They might be healed. That's what the Bible says, James chapter 5. I knew that. We all knew that. It wasn't like we was one of them kind of churches that didn't do that. We prayed for people all the time. Never even crossed my mind. And the thing that I look back on, it had to be a God thing, is there were several there that was a type to just, you know, say, come on, we're going to pray for you, let's go pray. Nobody did that. Everybody was concerned. I was obviously in a lot of discomfort. And it never even crossed anybody's mind. And looking back on it, it God was the reason it didn't cross anybody, because he was going to do something that night. He was going to do something miraculous. In my life, it was just for me. It wasn't for nobody else. 
just for me to see, right? Strengthen me as a Christian. So we go back to church that night. I went to went through the whole service, right? Everybody wanted to know if mine's any better, all that stuff. Went through the whole service. When the altar call was given, I went to the altar. I didn't go to the altar to pray about my eye. I actually, I don't even remember now what it was, but there was something else, right, that I was praying about. It, maybe somebody I worked with, whatever. I don't remember, but there was a different reason why I went to the altar. I don't even in my mind specifically remember saying, you know, Heavenly Father, Lord, just touch my eye, give me a healing touch. You know how, di- how much this bothers me. I, I want to be able to see so I can read your word, so that I can go on and serve. You know, I, didn't, I don't remember saying any of that. I don't think I did. I might have vaguely, just briefly mentioned in my prayer, you know, Lord, help bring me some comfort or healing or something like that. But when I opened my eye, now, now let me stop for just a second in case you're going, well, now, why would God heal your eye and you weren't fervently praying for that? When did healing come to Job and his life and his family? Right? When did God restore Job, right? When he, healed, when he prayed for his friends. I don't even know if I knew that passage of Scripture at that time. That's how new I was as a Christian in the Word. But when I opened my eye, I mean, it's just natural, right? You've got both eyes closed at the altar. That's what you do. And when you're done, you stand up, you open your eyes and you stand up, right? That's instinctively what I did. Open my eyes and stand up, except when I opened my eyes, my vision was perfect. Not a drop of what, not nothing. Nothing. It scared me. <laughs> it scared me so much that I turned around and made a beeline straight back to where me and Jennifer were sitting. And, of course, the service was ending, closing prayer. I grabbed her and the kids and head out. Listen to me. I didn't say a word to nobody at that moment. I was afraid. Here's what I was afraid. I was afraid, one, that I would say something and that, you know, I'd tell them. Of course, I knew, you know, it'd be a big deal then. And then, like, I, I, I was afraid that I'd blink again and come back. That's what I was afraid of. And so we made it out of there in a hurry. And as soon as we, of course, the kids are little, right? Jake and Abby are, I don't know, one and two, two and three, something like that, you know? They're toddlers, teens, you know? And as soon as we get them loaded in the car, we had a minivan then, loaded in the minivan and sat down, I turned to Jennifer and I'm like, my eye, look at this. And anyways, I mean, you know, we were both just, absolutely blown away. Never. I've never had a problem with it again since. Never, not once. I was worried I'd blink and it'd come back. Well, I blinked a lot and it never has come back. I've rubbed my eyes a lot and it never has come back. Now, foolish me, oh me of little faith, I should have jumped up shouting and rejoicing. Everybody in that church house knew and they would have known and they could have all rejoiced with me. Oh, me a little faith. I was afraid it was some sort of fluke or something, you know. God touched me. God healed me. Remember. Remember the miracle. Look, I am not the only one in here that God performed a miracle in their life. Remember the times that God has supernaturally moved in your life in a profound way unmistakable way. That's what he's telling them. Remember. The prescription, how to relight the torch. Remember. Remember the miracles. Remember the hand of God. I can tell you another one. Don't worry, Jake. I won't tell another story tonight. I'll save it for a later time. But I can tell you another time where literally the hand of God swept me out of the way and it would have been death if it hadn't happened in that moment. It wasn't my body physically moving. It couldn't move. Not like that. Not that fast. Not to a place of security that I didn't even know existed. But yet moved me out of the way and kept me from getting crushed to death. Remember. Do you remember why Jesus died for you? What I'm saying, what I mean by that, what I'm saying that is, do you remember 
the old man, do you remember who you used to be? Do you remember who you were before God saved you and put his spirit in you and renewed you and you were born again of the spirit of God? Do you remember what it was, the life that God saved you from? Do you remember whenever you got saved, what it felt like, right? When the burden of the sin rolled off, right? Do you remember what it felt like in that moment, the days after, the weeks after, to know, glory to God, that death no longer, you had no longer had a fear of death, death no longer had a hold over you. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Do you remember? remember the moment he reached down into the miry pit and he grabbed you and he lifted you up and he set your feet on a solid rock. Do you remember what that felt like? And then the next thing, right? I, I said there's three things here. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent. So remember is the first step. The second one is repent. Repent. Seems like I've preached about that a lot here lately. That's all right. We need to know. To repent means to have a change of heart. It's the, to have the kind of change of heart that causes you to think differently about things, right? It causes you to change your mind about sin. Right? About what is sin, right? Uh, it causes you to change your mind about God and, and about yourself, right? It causes you to change your mind about what is right and what is wrong. It causes you to change your mind about who gets to decide what is right and what is wrong. And when you repent, you turn away from sin and disobedience and rebellion. You turn away from that and you turn to God. Listen to me. Hear me closely right now. There is no salvation without repentance. Repent. Repentance, and, and I adamantly advocate this, it begins in the heart. It happens first in the heart. You cannot just give it lip service. It must come from your heart. You must be it must bother you, right? You've got to come to the point of the realization of your sin breaks your heart. It bothers you. You can't bear the thought of continuing in the sin. And therefore, you repent of it and you turn away from it. It must come from the heart. I heard someone say one time, and it was a preacher say one time about marriage. He was talking about marriage, but he said, if you would do the things after you get married that you did before you got married, you'd stay married. So in other words, what he was saying is, is if you would work as hard and do the things, right, for your spouse and towards your spouse and act the way that you did when you were trying to win their heart, you wouldn't have any problem staying married. I think that's good advice and that's very true. I think Christian service is the same way, too. I think that's kind of what he's saying here when he says, remember thy first works. Repent of where you've, or where you've fallen to and the things that you're doing now. Turn back, remember, right? Remember the early things, then go back to them. That's the last thing here. That's step three, right? In verse five here, right after repent, it says, and do the first works. That's it. Do the first works, right? First is a, the word first is a term of priority, right? That means set those things at highest priority, right? It's easy to get busy and not keep our priorities straight, right? What did you, uh, what did you get busy doing first, right? That's what we need to remember. That's what we need to go back to. Let me give you the answer. Make your relationship with the Lord your first, your number one priority. Let's do the first one. That right there, that's the formula to relight the fires and the torch, to regain that first love, to regain that zeal. And listen to me. Let's just be super honest for a minute. I know. Now, not that I can call your name out and I've got some personal intimate knowledge of you. I don't. But I do know. In a, in a church of our size like ours, 
there's people here in all stages of the walk of their Christian life. There is some that right now, they are on fire. Right now they're doing the first works. Let this be a warning to you that it's easy to let that slip. There's a, those of you here right now tonight that's somewhere either growing cold or have grown cold. There's some right here that has slipped to the point where you're doing all the right things. But the truth is, if we could examine the heart, you're just going through the motions. You're just going through the motions. Can I call you, can I urge you to remember? Remember. Remember. That's the first step. Remember. Then repent. And then do the first works. So as Jennifer comes for a song of invitation tonight, I'm going to give an altar call. I don't know where you stand. I don't know what your relationship with God is, is like. I don't know. I asked you this morning, where do you live? That would be, that'd be a good question for tonight. That'd go right along with this. Where are you in your walk with God? Do you have a relationship with Him? Where's it at? Are you on fire right now? Or are you just going through the motions? Are you somewhere in between? Would you stand to your feet? I want to open the altar and I want to give you an opportunity to come tonight. Spirit of God dealing with you. I want you to come. It's not about me. It's not about everyone else or what somebody else might think. It's about your walk and your relationship with God. If he's drawing you, come tonight. Maybe you've realized tonight that you're not where you ought to be. Maybe, you, maybe, maybe you're lost. Maybe you've never been saved. Maybe, maybe you have been saved, but you've grown cold. Maybe you've backslidden. I don't know what it might be. Maybe there's somebody that God's burdened your heart with. Somebody you've got on your mind right now that uh, they once were walking with the Lord, but now they've grown cold and indifferent. Whatever it is, if you've got a burden, would you come tonight? Would you come and pray tonight, whatever it might be? Don't miss this opportunity. Would you come?